there are these huge societal issues which are going to need scientists to solve them. And they're all incredibly exciting and they all need so many different skills. And I think that young people and girls particularly don't get told that same message as boys. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypherskin and a very special guest, Jess Wade, who is a physicist at Imperial College London, working on developing new materials for electronic devices and also an advocate for correcting gender and racial bias on Wikipedia. Jess, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me and for that kind interruption. <laughs> no, no, I, no, no you're, you're entirely welcome. You, you came up last week and then I did some background and there's a great deal of background to see. But I have to say first, you are the only guest we've ever had who has a commemorative personalized Casio calculator. And if that isn't the best, like the pinnacle of nerd achievement that I've ever heard in my entire life, I, I never have like jealousy of things that other people have done. But when I heard you had your own calculator, part of me went, oh, wow. How I can't I even look at it. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> that, don't be. It's fantastic. It's it's kind of the coolest, most flattering, and most overwhelming thing. So they made a series of women in science calculators, but the other people on them are kind of Rosalind Franklin and Marie Curie, and then it's just me. Wow. How good is that? Did, did, did you see it, Dan? I haven't seen it. I have to, I have to see Please it. Please don't look. It's, Please don't it's look. superb. No, I'll tell you, we, we won't put it in the show notes because it's, it's, it, I, I hear the trepidation in your voice. But, Dan, <laughs> you do you do have to see it. I mean, this is I – was, I was so impressed. I didn't even know that they did that. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's perfectly possible. How did you get a commemorative calculator? I I think that the um, person who was leading the project, it's Casio in Spain, and they had seen not actually the Wikipedia project, but they'd seen that I'd done this fundraising campaign to get a, a book that kind of looks at the reasons behind the inequality we have in society, a book that's incredibly important to me called Inferior. And I did a crowdfunding campaign to get that into schools. And I think that the manager at Casio had seen that and been like, this is the sweetest thing ever. Let's turn her into a calculator. That's amazing. <laughs> We're so using that for the promo clip. This is the sweetest thing ever. Let's turn her into a calculator. And and do you know how I found that out about you, Jess? I looked on Wikipedia. <laughs> Great website. Big fan. Yeah. Now, now we don't have we don't have Wikipedia pages, but you do. Yeah, I do. Excellent. I do. <laughs> you, you've written over over nine hundred. I've written over one thousand. One thousand. Yes. Congratulations. I know, and I was planning this huge. I wasn't really planning a party, but I was going to do something exciting. But obviously, the pandemic has has made meant that, that I celebrated that in lockdown. Not not over a thousand biographies. Uh, now. Before we actually get into the guts of using Wikipedia for science communication, I wanted to ask you how you got started with this project in the first place. Sure. So I'd been doing kind of throughout my PhD and then early career as a scientist, I'd been doing quite a lot of initiatives and outreach to try and kind of promote equality and particularly focus on increasing the representation of women and also people of colour in physics in, in the UK and actually kind of globally we have a really severe shortage of anyone who isn't a white man in physics research. And so I'd been kind of working on that for a while and particularly looking at initiatives that could support girls in high school in making those decisions and, and people who aren't at kind of expensive fancy schools and, and showing people that everyone can and should do physics, that it's a really great career to do. And and then I read this book called Inferior, which was which I mentioned before, which was kind of the prompt for this calculator. And and Inferior is, is this kind of phenomenally powerful manual that guides you in the way that science has got women wrong. It's by an author called Angela Saini, who is an engineer turned science writer. And in Inferior, she kind of set out to try and look at why society holds the stereotypes that it does about women, where these kind of ideas originated from and the science that they're based on. And what she shows kind of, throughout this kind of epic journey 
is that they're based on pretty rubbish science, very biased science done by very biased scientists. And around the same time that I was reading Inferior, I, I learned about Wikipedia. I met a phenomenal, another phenomenal woman called Dr. Alice White, who is a historian of science. And her job is, is basically to get content about medical sciences onto Wikipedia. She works for the Welcome Collection. And she taught mm. me about the kind of power of it. So, so, you know, however many million views, however long people are spending on the internet, Wikipedia gets about on average 32 million views a day on English speaking Wikipedia. But, you know, at the moment with everyone at home, everyone learning from home, everyone wanting kind of access to nonpartisan information, there was one day in March where across all Wikipedia platforms, it had 650 million views. Like the audience is incredible. So Alice's job is particularly getting kind of that medical content on there so that people see it. And, and she taught me about how powerful it was, but also how kind of biased it was. You know, it's this phenomenally powerful encyclopedia, this super important platform, but the people who contribute to it aren't very diverse. There's a real shortage of, of women and actually people from the global south who contribute to Wikipedia. And as a result, women and issues relating to the global south are very, very poorly represented on it. Now. Say I wanted to create a Wikipedia page for a scientist. How would I get started? What's involved in actually doing this? So first you have to choose which scientist you're going to write about, which is actually quite difficult. (laughs) (laughs) At first, I kind of went through all of the successful professors in the UK. You know, actually, I went around all of the different physics departments and looked at women and looked for women and people of color and, and made their pages. And then beyond that, I kind of branched out beyond physics. I thought I can actually technically write about other things. And so I've learned so much other science in the process of doing this. It's actually been quite phenomenal. But the, the, the hardest thing is choosing the right person to write about. And the reason is that Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, right? It's a kind of general interest place for information. Not everyone can have a Wikipedia page. And, and not everyone should have a Wikipedia page, just like not every every single thing that we encounter in our lives should be on Wikipedia. It has to be something that people want to, to read. It has to be something for kind of general interest. And so there are notability criteria for Wikipedia and, and for scientists, for academics, there are quite strict notability criteria, which kind of makes it hard to just pick any kind of incredible rising star woman person of color scientist so you have to be careful about who you're going to write about and how you write it and and i guess the easiest thing i mean the most simple thing to do is you just type the name into wikipedia or type it into google see if they have a wikipedia page then then when you go to wikipedia and you search for their name it will say you know so and so doesn't have a wikipedia page do you want to create it and and you can just click create and then you can you're away you know it's 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 the most simple thing in the world to edit and to contribute to it really surprises me that more people don't okay what is what are the eligibility criteria for scientists because i mean i'd i'd have a go at this um so the notability criteria yeah i mean I think that that my issue and a lot of people's issue with it when you're trying to write these pages is that the notability criteria academia use to decide whether someone's important or not, you know, number of papers that they've published, big awards that they've won, huge research grants that they've got, contributions to the media, all of those things, which we know in science are biased, of how you gauge whether someone's notable enough for Wikipedia. So, mm. so the kind of set list is one that selects for s- successful white men. Right. Okay. So more attention in the first instance, um, you know, a pre-existing bias that you then amplify by saying, well, you haven't met the eligibility criteria. You can't get onto Wikipedia and get into the 650 million views a day kind of attention stream. It's exactly that. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's like a circle, right? Because it's much more easy to write about someone for Wikipedia if they've been frequently on the radio or in the newspapers or on television, or if they're really frequently cited, it's much more easy to write about them and prove their notability. 
But as a result of that, it's more likely that they'll be called up and asked to go on the radio or on the television or something like that. Because journalists use Wikipedia a lot when they're kind of, you know, if they're about to have an expert come on on a particular topic, they don't have time to read the peer-reviewed scientific journal on it. So they go to Wikipedia to find out that information. And they also go to Wikipedia when they're programming their shows and they're choosing who they invite on. They look for the experts in those lists. And so actually kind of exactly what you said, you're, you're more likely to be on Wikipedia if you're kind of this, you know, the old guard of scientific academia, but you're also more likely to be easy to write about for Wikipedia if you've, if you've kind of got all of those links and, and connections to journalists already. Right. I guess that's why I'm not on it. Bloody hell. Um <laughs> You're just going to be nice to me. That's the criteria. <laughs> there you go, James. There's the key. Or, or, or I could try being notable. Now, look if you if you Google me anywhere, it always comes up with the film, um, which is a which is a great film. <laughs> yeah, I think one hesitation that uh, people may have with creating or editing Wikipedia pages is that somebody will edit your hard work, beginning these uh, so-called edit wars. Can you walk us through the process here? Yeah, so when you when you write a Wikipedia page, especially when you're a new editor, it will be checked by other editors before it goes live, kind of, so to speak. So you can make small edits on existing pages, but if you're going to create an entirely new page, it will go in kind of a holding queue while people check that the thing is notable enough, that you've put enough adequate citations, that you've put enough useful content in, that it's formatted in the right way. And so there's kind of this delay while people check it. The, the kind of editing process and the journey of a Wikipedia page, I think is quite exciting to watch. You know, you watch, you, you start a page, you write some kind of basic information or what you have access to at the time. And then as, I guess, as time goes by, as, as the story evolves, the Wikipedia page grows and grows and you see it happening in such incredible pace on issues that are kind of current affairs. So the Wikipedia page on coronavirus or the Wikipedia page on the protests after the, the murder of George Floyd were being edited mm. so phenomenally quickly. It was kind of fascinating to watch and contributed to by people all over the world. There's actually a beautiful website called Hat Notes. I don't know if either of you have ever been on it, but you no, can what's that? it's it's a website where you can listen to Wikipedia grow. So it's a live editing website, but with sounds to represent kind of new users joining and new pages creating. Wow. It's really, it's kind of, it's very hip, hip, hypno, hypnotical. It's very hypnotizing. It's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely haven't written enough pages around psychiatry. So it's a very, it's a very. <laughs> <laughs> You've inspired me to do that. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give give you an example. Um, There was an enormous explosion in Beirut yesterday, um, which was, uh, it seems to have been caused by the improper storage of ammonium nitrate, um, which is, yeah, yeah, well, I've looked up the Wikipedia page. I'd say there's about a thousand, this happened about uh, maybe six o'clock East Coast time, so maybe... 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, no, no, we actually, it was about 6 p.m. your time, Jess. So, so, yeah, yeah. So it's been less than 24 hours. I say there's a thousand words here and there's 106 references. Um, it's so already the been exciting thing to-, to do is to click view history. So on the, on the tabs along the top, you as a, a normal Wikipedia user, just click on article. But if you click yeah. the tab to the right of article that says view history, mm-hmm. you can see the people who've contributed to it. And so you see the kind of timestamps of when people have been editing. And I don't think that since this happened, there has been a consecutive five minutes without any editing. Wow. It's Look at that. so fast. And I think the other beautiful thing about Wikipedia is that this, we are collectively looking at the English language page. But if you look in the, mm. on the left-hand side in that column, you see all the other languages that this Wikipedia page exists in. And none of those will be the literal translation of this English page. 
It will be the Norwegian interpretation of it. It will be the Portuguese interpretation of it. It will be what their context is for the news that's happening. So Wikipedia doesn't only offer you this opportunity to collect and kind of aggregate non-partisan news, you know, facts when an issue like this is happening, but it also gives people the chance to respond to it in their own kind of culturally appropriate and, and geographically appropriate way. They're all very different interpretations of what's going on, which I think is quite phenomenal. Yeah, there, mu there must be some really interesting uh, sort of low-key cultural conflicts buried in here. There are huge ones. There was an investigation yeah. by the BBC, and I don't know what happened with it, but there was an investigation maybe half a year ago looking at kind of state-sponsored editing of Wikipedia, particularly around countries that have kind of you know, political people are very politically divided on who's in charge and things like that. And there is, there is incredible conflicts in those edits. So coming back to your original point, the, the only way I've seen, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Obviously there are some times when you're on Wikipedia and you think that people make very non-constructive contributions to your page and it's very disheartening. But the beautiful thing about it is because it's all logged and documented in such a kind of transparent way, if anyone makes a really horrific change, if an edit happens that you're really not okay with, you can walk it back, you can, you can click undo, and you can justify why you've done that. And, and there's been a, quite a few times when I've done that and said, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. But actually, I think the contributions from other users, particularly people all over the world, have made the pages that I've written so much richer, you know, not only in translation, but adding facts that I wouldn't have access to or be able to find otherwise. And so I think, you know, you get a bit frustrated and you get a bit freaked out by the ideas of this edit war, but none of your work is ever lost, lost. And actually, mm. I think it makes pages better. Now, speaking of, yeah, right. speaking of transparency, what are the norms on Wikipedia when it comes to using your real name when editing and creating pages? Is, is this a thing like Reddit where you almost never use your real name or is there, are there norms around actually doing that uh, in terms of transparency? I mean, you can and you can't. There's, there's, no, there's no set rule, I would say. There's no expectation that you should use your name. There's no expectation that you should put what you do. I would encourage all people who are listening and who are new editors when they set up their kind of user page. So when you, when you make a Wikipedia account, you have a kind of landing page, which is very like your kind of, I, I don't want to say Facebook profile because Facebook is awful, but very like a social media profile on another website where you put some basic information about yourself so that when users see that you've contributed to a page, they can click and find out some more and go and, you know, go and read about why you might have done it. And I would encourage people to put information in there, like when you started editing Wikipedia and why you started, you know, I started in August 2020 because I want to create new pages about neuroscientists. Because then it will give other users the understanding that you're new and that they should be nice to you, but also that you're kind of serious about the project. You know, Wikipedia is this phenomenally powerful platform, not just in, in choosing who goes on the media, but also in kind of education, actually in, in scientific research, which I hope we're going to talk about a little bit. But, but actually, I think giving the context that you're serious about it, making that page, saying why you're doing what you're doing, makes other people other wikipedia editors kind of think okay that's fine i'll be nice to them and so i would say make a user page if you want to edit about things that are to do with your research then maybe i'd dissuade people from putting where they work because sometimes wikipedia editors get a bit difficult around conflicts of interest and they can call you out for editing pages related to people who work at the same institution as you are really closely in your field. And so I would right. say, I would say it's probably, you know, say you want to edit pages about X, but not that you work at Y. Okay. Yeah. So you can't write your own, Dan, in case that's what you were thinking. <laughs> you can, you just have to do it under a pseudonym. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's so obvious uh, when people have. <laughs> 
Like it's so incredibly obvious. I mean, sometimes you see those those kind of banners along the top that says this has been written by someone who has a close connection to the subject, which I just think is such a sassy way of saying we think you wrote your own Wikipedia yeah. page. But you can because you can, you have this, you know, every single person who accesses and uses Wikipedia can click view history and can take a look at all of the people who've contributed. And and there are some people who are quite, you know, high profile and you go back in time and you see that they they either started or majorly, majorly influenced their Wikipedia page when it was in, you know, the early days of the project. And I just think it's so funny that you can find that all out. There used to be, I used to see ads knocking around the internet, you know, uh, playing a silly game on your phone or uh, just in a banner somewhere of uh, people who were low-key selling access, which never made any sense because you can just do it yourself. So having... Saying we'll make your Wikipedia page. Exactly, yeah. There are lots of people who email them around now, and I think there's quite a few people who do pay for it. I know that I I did a talk somewhere about about Wikipedia and, and why we need to make it better, and this incredibly pushy American woman came up to me at the end and asked, basically asked me then and there to make a Wikipedia page. And then I, I kind of said something and snuck away. And then she phoned me the next day. She got my phone number from somewhere on the on internet. The telephone. And I was on an airplane and she left a voicemail. And it was, you know, to say it was this person. And can you make, can we have a chat about making my Wikipedia page? And then she kept calling me for about, I mean, She's finally stopped now, but probably having said that, she'll ring tomorrow. And and I looked at the history of her Wikipedia page, and it was very clear she'd paid someone to write it. You know, it was it was kind of written terribly and all recycled from kind of CVs or previous biographies, which is really not what the encyclopedia is about. And so people really are. There's been quite a few academics who forwarded me things and said so and so is offering to to offering me if I pay them they'll make this page and you just think I mean no <laughs> it shows show such a fundamental misunderstanding of the project yeah bloody hell so I, I guess I mean if you want to do your own I guess it's far more hagiographic than the normal version written by someone totally disinterested would be so it probably just shows up you know, if you, you, you load it up and it's like, his his phenomenal research. Like, <laughs> yep, yep, you're phenomenal. That's exactly <laughs> it. You can't be, you can't be neutral about yourself. You can't be neutral about someone who pays your wages, who you're in <laughs> love with or who is you. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, about women in science. And uh, as both a, a scientist and a father to two daughters, I want to give them every chance to get interested in science and engineering. Um, but you've been critical of current efforts to of getting girls into science, at least those in the UK. So what do you think is the best way to actually get girls into science? I think it's to normalise science and to make young people in general, girls, boys, whatever, realize that science is an exciting and dynamic job that everyone can contribute to and everyone should contribute to. And I think I've been I've been kind of critical of initiatives in the UK because I find them really patronizing to young women. And I find this idea that's kind of perpetuated everywhere that we have to somehow make science more girly to for for young women to like it. You know, we have to the, the girls are wrong. The girls have, have made the bad call. And somehow we need to make science more, more pink, more related to quote unquote issues that they're interested in. And I think this idea that we separate girls from boys is completely wrong because we really need to emphasize that science is a huge aspect of society. Science is has always been important, but right now is more important than ever before, whether it's kind of, you know, antibiotic resistance coming up with a coronavirus vaccine or or tackling climate change. You know, there are these huge societal issues which are going to need scientists to solve them. And they're all incredibly exciting and they all need so many different skills. And I think that young people and girls particularly don't get told that same message as boys. And instead we say you know, come along, all of the science kits for girls, the kind of 
cosmetics kits or kind of build a hairdryer. And I just think it's, I think it's patronizing. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the only thing that was missing the whole time was we didn't have any pink pipettes. It, that's exactly it. Like you laugh, but then you look at these kind of initiatives and schemes and it's always, we're going to separate from the girls from the boys. We're going to put the girls in this special girls summer camp or whatever, do whatever this thing is. And I really think that, I think girls and young women see through it. I think we've got another huge issue in the UK and I know it's the same in the States, but we have a Mm. huge shortage of specialist science teachers, particularly for subjects like physics and kind of advanced maths. So we don't have teachers in high schools who are really confident in the subject that they're teaching. And that has a massive impact on whether young people think about taking a subject or not, particularly girls who are, you know, not, don't have the confidence in that subject anyway, because of all of the stereotypes in society. And then they see their teachers that not, not that confident about teaching it, or even competent at it. Sometimes they're, you know, they left physics at high school, and now they're being asked to teach it. And I think that that really influences young people's decisions. Yeah, right. Um, I never really thought we, we, we've had, I don't think we've had a single episode that's ever focused on the kind of secondary education aspect of that. Lots of stuff on Psycom, the, 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 the general appreciation of what everyone does. But I don't think we've had a single educational theorist or no. not even really an errant thought. But that is, that's a very good point. It's it it's it's powerful and it's frustrating and it's something that's so hard to fix without really fundamentally changing government policy. You know, if if we really? paid teachers more, if we paid teachers in the same way that we pay software developers, we'd have far more physicists and computer scientists teaching in schools. But because the pay is so awful, the kind of job security and job happiness in, in, in high school teaching in, in probably in all of the Western world actually is so poor. People, people either start and then leave or don't, or just don't ever start. So I think we obviously, and and I guess this, this has been discussed more in the podcast, but we have a huge amount of work to do on improving the scientific community and recognizing that people can be incredible science communicators as well as being really great researchers and that that's a valid job I think that's so important to do but we also really need to think about how we're inspiring young people and who we're inspiring because at the moment you're much much more likely to encounter a physicist teaching you physics if you go to a fee-paying single-sex school than if you go to a mixed free school and that means that physics isn't only very male dominated but it's also really elitist mm. well it's d- d- tremendous barriers to access if that's the case huge barriers yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I can't remember anyone i've ever talked to at any point in time ever saying i went to a public school and my physics teacher was really great but then <laughs> similarly you can't i've i have met so few i don't think i've ever met a woman physicist who doesn't say the reason they're doing physics or working as a physicist is because of that. You know, they always say it was their teacher. They always say it was that, you know, either their one of their parents was an engineer and they grew up playing with Lego, which is kind of a classic for engineers. Most of them go on to become engineers. But, but the other one is that they had this interaction with their teacher. And the fact that we now have so few physicists teaching physics is just going to make this whole situation harder. I am um, one of the reasons that I'm actually in biological psychology was a um, an amazing uh, biology teacher I had in high school who who was absolutely inspiring and it, it makes such a big difference. Um, now, w- one thing I want to talk about is this idea around, which is related to to, to Wikipedia and representation of Wikipedia, but is this idea around diversity in science award winners um, within psychology at least? It happens every year in that there, there, there's there's always an award. Uh, there's an award for for, for 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 rising stars or for, for for researchers, and they all tend to come from the same institutions. Um, there, there, there tends to be a high represent, representation in males, so the, it, it's a big problem. But 
what ways do you see other than actually having, what, what, what ways do you see in actually uh, f- fixing this, fixing this imbalance in science award winners? Yeah, I think we have a really big issue here, not just in, in kind of medals and prizes and recognition of contributions, but also in the allocation of research funding and grants. So I think you not only see this huge bias to certain institutions, you know, in the UK, we have two that are overrepresented in every single award list. And, but also you have it in the way that students within research groups are awarded fellowships and kind of their early career research grants, that you're much, much more likely to get them if the PI on your project is affiliated with one of these kind of incredibly influential professional bodies. So if your PI has one of these prestigious fellowships, you're more likely to get it. It's kind of, you know, so similar to Wikipedia. It's this idea that privilege is just giving rise to even more privilege. So, so you give someone an honor, a celebration, and, and that, that means that they're honored and celebrated more. And I think that really impacts the kind of people who think that they'll succeed in science. You know, if you aren't lucky enough to go to one of these institutions, if you're not in that top list of, of people who win these psychology awards, then you're just so unlikely to even get your foot in the door of academia. And that's kind of the thing that frustrates me. So I've been... I spent kind of the last couple of months looking at the diversity of science award winners. So really thinking who is winning physics awards or or chemistry awards, but physics awards primarily in the UK, where, which institutions are they coming from? And, and unsurprisingly, women are very underrepresented, but people of color, particularly black physicists, barely win any in, in kind of the total number of awards that I counted that had only been two winners of all time of physics medals that had gone to black physicists two and two two in out of how many over a thousand medals and prizes and they were both early career medals so it's still saying you know you're not you're not important enough to win these big prestigious prizes (sighs) and and so I've kind of been working alongside writing these Wikipedia pages, because I've got really good at writing why people are important. So I've been working on nominating more diverse people for prizes and awards and for honors. So I think the way we change it, coming back to your original question that I digress from a lot, but the way that we change it is to really think about who we're sitting down and spending our time writing about. You know, I don't think it's entirely the fault of the organizations who are giving out the prizes because they just deal with the the nominees that they get. It's kind of on us as a scientific community to spend literally an hour sitting down, writing a citation for someone and justifying why they should be the one to win the prize. So I've been doing that and trying to encourage people to do that at at kind of the same time as doing the Wikipedia project, because I found like, I don't know why, but I find it the most overwhelmingly enjoyable thing when someone worthy wins a prize. Honestly, like, if I see it, I kind of jump out of my seat. I'm so happy that it's happened, that someone's been recognized for what they've done. I, I enjoy it far more than any personal success. It's honestly like I ring my mom. I'm like, this is so cool. So, so one this like it's, and, and so part of it is similar to me writing these Wikipedia pages about science. I don't know about, I get such a rush about learning and, and for nominating other people for prizes when they get it, I'm like, that is just the most awesome thing. Damn. I oh, digress slightly. I mean, you say you, you take a great deal of pleasure in that, which I understand. If you've ever got any chat from just random bastards on the internet, is there not a great deal of pleasure in immediately producing another article that's going to annoy them as much immediately afterwards? <laughs> I mean, there is. And actually, <laughs> long. That is definitely what I'd get from it. So long before I started editing Wikipedia, there was a phenomenal woman called Emily Templewood. Uh, there is still, she still exists. She's a medical student now, but she started writing pages about women. And every single time she got abuse from a troll on the internet, she'd write another page about women. And this was in kind of the early days of the Wikipedia project. Her username was Kilana, and she became kind of famous for this very I want to say knee jerk, but knee jerk always sounds bad. It's kind of a cool response of every time she got some kind of abuse online, she'd channel it into a Wikipedia biography about a notable woman. 
and actually her contributions in the early so, days you can track the kind of quality of a page you know the number of pages she was writing not only increased the representation of women but it increased the quality of the pages written about women and that's the other really important thing about wikipedia that you don't just want a kind of basic rubbish page about a woman or a person of color you want it to be really comprehensive and linked to other things and make sure that people drive a driven a directed to that page and also hang around and stick about on it so she she did that she channeled that troll energy into these kind of phenomenal pages nice yeah it's like aikido you're redirecting the energy of the troll back into something that's going to annoy them even more but it's also you know good for society and representation (laughs) (laughs) troll aikido you heard it here first and the, actually, the thing I wanted to mention that I completely forgot to mention earlier on, so sorry to listeners that this is, seems disconnected, but the, the way that Wikipedia influences science, influences science, particularly now, because science is becoming increasingly interdisciplinary, researchers use Wikipedia to get that kind of background and baseline knowledge. I mean, probably everyone listening has, has gone to Wikipedia before for some information. And there was a fantastic study a couple of years ago by a professor at MIT who assigned different kind of niche areas of chemistry to their class to write pages about for Wikipedia. So kind of emerging areas that didn't have Wikipedia pages and uploaded some and kept some as a control and then checked the representation of these topics in in literature, in in peer-reviewed scientific literature, and found that you could assign one in 300 words from science papers to them being on these Wikipedia pages. So it's not only important in kind of, you know, the real world, but also within academic science, which I find fascinating. Well, Too I mean, inspired. Just, we, yeah, look, we, we often, we've, we've talked uh, plenty of times previously about the kind of citation mechanics of what shows up first under any given search term is a lot of the time it's a thing that gets cited. And the moment that becomes cited, it it remains uh, increasingly citable until all of a sudden, you know, it's it's grown completely out of proportion of whatever inherent quality it had. Um, certainly Dan and I have both complained about papers that have no business having hundreds of <laughs> citations. Um, but it's, exact, it's exactly the same thing. It appears somewhere that's easily accessible and then it's noted. And by being noted, it becomes notable. And that's the end of the story. And, and I think that the thing about Wikipedia is that accessibility. It's the lack of jargon. It's the way it's, it's got, to, I've got to write it so that your 11 year old child or 75 year old mom or research partner can understand it. And that's, that's really difficult to do. But once you've done that, then then people will go to there for information, then when people will cite that literature, which I just think is so fascinating. Did you know that our Everything Hurts patrons can get access to a library of 20 bonus episodes? Well, you do now. We release a bonus episode every month to our $5 a month patrons who also get a lifetime 20% discount on Hurch merchandise. We also have a $1 per month tier, which gives you access to a monthly newsletter, the merch discount, and the occasional bonus episode. If you want to support the show but can't swing the Patreon money, you can share a review or post about the show on social media instead, as we'd love that as well. Now, let's get back to the show. Now, Jess, last year you co-authored an article with our recent Hertz guest, Chris Jackson, and another uh, co-author whose name escapes me, and it was titled The Reward and Risk of Social Media for Academics. And you mentioned a rule in this paper, and I'm, I'm going to read this out to verbatim, that uh, academics should not say anything on social media that they wouldn't feel comfortable saying in a chat at the end of a lecture. Um, so what do you think about this? And, and how do you go about uh, approaching your own tweeting? Because you're fairly active on Twitter. Um, which I think is a good thing. But uh, what do you think about this rule? Um, did we make up this rule? No, it, you, you mentioned, no, someone else had mentioned this rule and it was mentioned in this paper. It wasn't something that, that, wasn't something that you and the co-authors came up with, but it was a rule that was mentioned. 
Amazing, because I was like, I do not remember making up any rules. I think one of the kind of beautiful things that Wikipedia has taught me is that the best projects have no firm rules. You know, Wikipedia is a series of guidance. This is how you should do this. This is how you shouldn't do this. But it's not it's not firm rules. And that's something I really value and love about social media, that you have this chance to have interactions with incredibly distinguished and eminent people, you know, the editors of your favorite journals, the Nobel Prize winners, the potential Nobel Prize winners, um, PhD researchers in your lab, undergraduates, even just today, I got a message on Twitter from someone's mum, who's um, a mum to daughters who are at my old high school. And so she was um, sending a message to say something. So I love that idea that everyone can connect and reach out and everyone has this kind of equal footing and and you know equal chance to to be heard i think that's what's really incredible about social media i've been i i try and use it in a way that i think is positive and productive and useful mainly because especially twitter can become so incredibly hateful and angry and things get propagated on them much, much faster if they're angry or or spiteful or something malicious. It gets shared a lot more. So something I've been really conscious of on social media is how you use it in an honest way, you know, to share issues you're concerned about, but also in a way that kind of is more forward thinking is this is what we can do to change it. It's not just sitting there and moaning. It's this is what we need to do differently. And so I think that you know, there are various guidelines and criteria for how academics should engage on social media. But in general, I think just be honest, use it in the way that best suits you. You know, if that's you want to reach out to researchers, if that's you want to connect to people in different parts of the world, for women scientists, particularly where you're usually isolated as, as you know, the only woman in your research lab, the only woman in your office, the only woman sometimes in your building, it's incredible to have something in your pocket that you can then connect to people all over the world at any kind of time or day or night and, and have a chat with them. And And I found that so valuable. So I would say, I'm so grateful to you that you told me that we didn't come up with that rule. <laughs> because I think people should break every rule and just do what they want. Yeah, I, I think it's so good. I, I, last night I was uh, I was putting together uh, I'm putting together uh, a grant and I was working on a figure and I could have waited a week or two when the lab was getting back, set up a lab meeting, talked about this figure, talked about my ideas. But I thought I'm going to chuck this on Twitter, put it on Twitter, and said, "Hey, Twitter, what do you think about this figure? How can I improve it?" Within the space of a couple of minutes, I had like 20 different people giving feedback, and ultimately, I was able to improve this figure within the space of about half an hour, and which, which would have I would have had to have waited two weeks for a lab meeting to do that. So the the, the ability to be able to connect with the people, um, and I, I think as well, it just it brings down barriers like writing. There was an insane uh, Twitter thread that I saw, I think yesterday, where someone was telling a story about uh, conventions around um, addressing people on on, um, on on emails. Do you use the, the, the formal professor or doctor titles? And essentially they were saying, yeah, I, I, I took, I looked at their email signature and I saw they were using their first name. And so I switched to using their first name after using doctor initially. I thought this was fine. But then because this was a group email, other people in the group privately emailed me going, uh, no, sorry, you, you, you can't do that. This person's too important. You have to go back to using, to using doctor. And this kind of stuff's insane when it comes to the conventions we have around email. So why one of the reasons why I love Twitter is that those conventions completely go away. It's very easy just to message someone going, hey, what do you think about this? Whether it's a public or, or, or DM, it, it completely takes away the friction of all these rules. And a, lo- a lot of these rules are, uh, tend to be uh, less understood when you are at an institution which doesn't have, <laughs> which isn't as fancy as, as the fancy institutions where this kind of stuff is taught. So the ability to do that, I think, for social media is just incredible. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. You've nailed it. It's it's it takes away these kind of weird power imbalances within academia. You know, you as a, one as a PhD researcher, as an undergraduate, as a postdoc, can have way more followers or way more engagement than someone who is literally has won the Nobel Prize in that topic. You know, you see these graduate researchers, you see these phenomenal people leading these Twitter accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers being. I don't know, kind of hilarious every day on there. And then, and you see them engaging with professors in this way that's, it's kind of taken away completely that barrier 
that you'd have because of these hierarchies that we kind of insist on enforcing within academia. I think it's honestly incredible for that. And I also just love this, the kind of amplification aspect of it, the idea, you know, in the past couple of months, and I don't know if you've spoken about it on the podcast yet, but you've had all of these phenomenal weeks on on social media. You had kind of black Black Birders Week. Mm-hmm. You have Black Black in Euro Week that just took place last last week. Next week is Black in Chem Week. You have all of these different weeks where people from completely different parts of the world and completely different scientific disciplines come together and share who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And and for for building a network, for learning about new things, and for trying to have that idea that you meaningfully share an inspirational person with members of the public i think social media is incredible yeah oh like it just so many people in my institute i'm 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 as you can probably aware i'm a massive cheerleader for social media and uh you know i'll, I'll do the odd talk in my institute or or, or, or different places and, and people are very ambivalent but i'm like you just don't understand the sort of opportunities that it can give you especially when it comes to changing those power imbalances there's so much gatekeeping that's involved in in, in submitting your, your your papers to journals um but with social media that gatekeeping is basically basically eliminated yeah you can just have a chat with the editor you can say do you think this is a legit thing that we should submit or do you think we don't bother because such a fast submitting even around kind of open access and and pre-printing stuff pre-printing papers and then sharing the link on social media and discussing it and and even you know from a if you're just a, a academic who doesn't think that much of social media having a pre-print that you share on twitter that you then collect the kind of outmetric score for the kind of insight, the the way that people have responded to that paper. You get this number that ha- shares that includes information about how often that paper has been shared on social media platforms. That actually, fascinatingly, includes Twitter and Wikipedia, and and mm-hmm. you can take that outmetric score and mention it in the cover letter that you write when you're submitting the paper to the journal. And showing that you've had this hugely phenomenal, positive, enthusiastic response because you shared it on social media can, may potentially influence the editor's choice. So I think from a, you know, new school publishing perspective, you know, this younger generation of academics who really want this collaborative insight to make scientific research better there's, there's the opportunity to discuss things and we can have these long DM threads and we can learn from each other. But from a kind of let's submit this to a peer review journal perspective, being able to show off about how much excitement you've had on social media certainly influences people's opinion of a paper. You know, you I've, know done I've done that in the past, couple, the past of years, couple of years uh, and I've shared, uh, shared uh, old metrics uh, for preprints. preprints. And whenever and I've done whenever that, I've never I've not never gotten the papers paper sent, sent, sent out for review. So exactly that. That's I've, incredible. I've, it's, I heard a few rejected after peer review, but that, that's out of my hands. When it comes to the interest of the editor, um, by actually going, Hey, that there is already interest in this piece. Uh, I haven't had, oh, I think, I think one of my articles has been used in a, in a Wikipedia article about my cardiac physiology stuff. But, um, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's a really great way of actually demonstrating, um, the, the, the power of preprints and the power of social media. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great strategy that I, that I recommend to everyone that I chat to. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just phenomenal. And I just also really love the idea that you I mean, I get we keep saying exactly the same thing about breaking down barriers, but I love the idea that you can have a prospective graduate student who kind of scopes out researchers on social media to see whether it's mm-hmm. the kind of lab that they might want to go into and then has these informal discussions, whether that's in in kind of the chat function, you know, a thread function or in a DM to find out whether it's something they should apply for. There's something much less intimidating about connecting on Twitter or something like that than, than email or, you know, something like LinkedIn. And I think, I think that this younger generation who are demanding more diversity, who are demanding more information about the labs they're going to join before they join them, they really, really use these platforms. So we should too. Totally agree, and it's such a great way of uh, just just getting an insight to ha- how these labs run. And uh, that's one thing that James and I have, have said in past episodes that uh, one of the things you have to do before applying for a new position, whether it's um, looking for a PhD or a postdoc supervisor, is chat to the people that are already in the lab privately. That is, uh, as to the environment of, of of what things are like there. And uh, Twitter DMs is is a, is a perfect way of doing that. 
I got one about a week ago from someone inquiring about a lab I used to work in. And then, uh, yeah, like literally. And, and, and so then we started on DMs, but it became too complicated to involve. So I had to give him a phone call, but it was still super useful. Like even just in processing my own experiences in that lab, I think, I think it was useful for him to hear about what it was like too. So I, I completely agree go for try and reach out to people and find out what it's like actually working in that group don't take the pi's word for it do you use other forms of social media um i have instagram but i really only used it i i used to have a very sweet dog but unfortunately he died at the beginning of the pandemic so i used to just use instagram to have pictures of sunrises and my dog but um, but now it's just sunrises and kind of cool crystal structures that I get in the lab. But really, Instagram is not a platform that I use for science engagement. It's just a place to store photos that I think people would like to look at. So so I do use Instagram, but not 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 as well as people who properly use Instagram do. Yeah, there there are some some amazing science communicators who are doing some great stuff on on Instagram. Um, but it seems to be more suited towards the sort of work where you get fantastic images lot, lot like the crystal st- structures that you mentioned um or stuff which actually has um good good video as well and it's something that i've been looking into ways of of doing it um a couple of episodes ago we spoke um about tiktok and the way that a lot of um a lot of scientists are using tiktok whether it's going to get banned in the states in the next few weeks is a different story um but it's 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 incredible because a lot of people uh that's where their attention is right now and um and and scientists are, are using tiktok in really interesting ways especially around coronavirus so i, I think is uh yeah there, there there are so many possibilities but uh but of course yeah i mean tw- twitter is for now the 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 main way to uh, to to communicate our work Probably between scientists, Twitter is really good. But certainly if you're looking to engage meaningfully with the public, I think TikTok and in less so Instagram, I think Instagram's really good for connecting to particular demographics. Yeah. I think yeah. that, you know, there's a lot more young women on Instagram, for example. But I think that TikTok gives you this opportunity. You know, there's been huge as you mentioned, kind of public health messages going out on TikTok, being translated into all different languages. It's so accessible i'm kind of staggered continuously staggered by people's creativity when you watch videos <laughs> on tiktok it's a oh it, people are doing some amazing stuff i just feel so inadequate i'm like every <laughs> time every time i think about anything I'm, you know the whole lockdown is awful the pandemic is awful but one thing it has shown me is the kind of beautiful creativity that people all over the world have and i think you lose that when you know you get on public transport and go into the lab every day and have this very focused life. And then you see this kind of, you know, everything is hilarious and clever and cool. And I just, you know, something about humanity has come out on TikTok. I never expected to say that. And now I sound so weird and emotional. (laughs) No, it's true. And I totally agree. And uh, there's something very addictive about the platform. So it'd be interesting to see how things pan out in the States, um, because if it's banned there, it's going to make a big difference or whether Microsoft or Apple um, purchases purchases uh, TikTok uh, as the platform. But we'll have to uh, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, for now, we have uh, run out of time. But uh, thanks for joining us on the sh- on the show, Jess. We're going to add all links to stuff that you mentioned uh, on the um, um, on, on the show notes. But uh, this is fascinating stuff, and it's inspired me to to, to look. Uh, I, I want to start doing some stuff on Wikipedia. I never have. It's something I've never looked into, despite the fact that that I, I use it almost daily to 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 read up on stuff that I'm reading. Uh, sorry, to, to 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 get a better idea on the stuff that I'm reading in scientific papers. Um, just as a way of, of science communication, because um, like we touched on a little bit in the last episode, um, we're, we're so desperate to communicate our work and often we're using platforms like Twitter and like TikTok, yet the audience or the people or the public that we want to actually access may not be using these platforms, but we do know that people, their first port of call for learning about something is Wikipedia. So if we as scientists can actually uh, either create pages or edit pages and improve them, this will give us the biggest or quite a big bang for our buck when it comes to communicating the science and the work that we do. Completely agree. I couldn't have said it better. So thank you for being so articulate and thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) 